Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. My name is Alex Hochuli. It's Thursday, the 10th of December, and BungaCast, as I'm sure you know, is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare in the UK. Uh, hello, guys. Hey, what's up? Hello, welcome to the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. I don't think you said it that time. I didn't. And I didn't the final say it. one, you didn't say it, and also the final one of uh, for our patrons. Yes. Of, uh, I get to say it in 2020. It is. This is the final Patreon episode of uh, of 2020. Uh, and we're going to be dealing with a bunch of your questions and criticisms, as we always do in Alpha Bonus Bonus. Um, but first, we figured we'd talk about 2020. Um, as we're recording what this... What a fantastic year it's been. A fantastic year. It's been a banner year. Yeah. Um, I, I, I suggested that we talk about the time person of the year, which actually hasn't been announced. It'll probably be announced in the next couple of hours or so. Um, but the, the people up there as options were... Uh, Joe Biden, uh, inspiring choice. Donald Trump, yes. defeated president, also inspiring yes. choice. Um, movement for racial justice, mixed bag yes. there. And uh, person. and uh, frontline workers and Dr. Fauci, obviously a compromise choice yes. on that last one. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, you know, time person of the year is, is at nearly as bad as uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, yeah. But, you know, but we're not going to talk about that. What we're going to talk about is the one Luckily. thing... Yeah, the one thing that we did achieve this year, um, which was writing a book, which, you know, people joke about like, oh, you're in lockdown. Why don't you write a book? And no one gets it done. The good news is, is that we had already planned to write a book before um, lockdowns happened, before the pandemic started. Um, and therefore, we were already on that treadmill. Um, it probably would and never we have did. gotten done. And we did. And yeah. we did. Um, and it was it was actually also, um, I mean, it will always be... Uh, always be a precious moment because um we also managed to well we finalized kind of we made uh, some of the key editorial decisions um while we were in brazil um visiting alex for well visit we were there for carnival and also for um for um, book writing yeah for book writing obviously the book writing was the most important part of the trip and um editorial important editorial decisions were taken and um at the yeah. beach <laughs> yeah at the beach that's right um, yeah, I mean, it's actually our friend Lee Jones, uh, who I'm sure regular listeners will know, has been on the podcast a number of times, who teaches a course on politics at the end of history or at the end of the end of history at Queen Mary, who prompted us to uh, to write the book. He said, yeah, you know, I'm doing this course. You guys should actually just write the book, kind of summarizing what's uh, what's happened on the podcast. Um, and, and so we and so we set about doing that, um, trying to obviously initially trying to spell out what the end of the end of history is. I mean, we talk about it a lot, yeah. but actually to try to chart out what are its political, mainly political aspects, but also cultural and economic aspects. Um, how does it feel? And how does it feel? Yeah. It, what are the feels? Feel? What are all of the feels? What or some the of them at least. And this was a good thing about the book because it did give us the opportunity to, um, to I suppose, uh, think about a bit more and explain some of the themes to which we consistently return on the podcast. Not least um, our evil patron saint and brand, Mr. Sil Big Silvio himself, Silvio Berlusconi, the former prime minister of Italy, who has recovered from COVID this year. Um, he's the real, he's, he's the real time he's, person of the year, surely. He's, he is absolutely. He's definitely <laughs> the bunga person of the year every year. He is bunga person of the year every year. Yeah. So, and luckily he recovered from COVID. Um, so, you know, we, we talk about um, Italy and um, Silvio, as well as Alex said, we get to kind of um, explore some of the intellectual philosophical underpinnings of um, what it means, what politics at the end of the end of history means, what politics at the end of history means. And if we're at the end of the end of the end of history, 
and whether or not there'll be a stage of the end of the end of the end of history and whether, <laughs> how many stages there that's, are. That's no. not true. No. Um, no, no, but no, I think, but I think the important thing is that the book um, tries to, I mean, spell out kind of what these, what these things are, but also to, I think a lot of the common sense discussion around it is that, hey, politics is back. Okay, what, does politi- what is politics and what, what would it mean that politics would be back after it being away? Um, and also, what does history restarting mean? If, you know, and I think we, we kind of go into that discussion quite a bit about what, what history is and what would it mean to restart? Because I, we don't hold that history has restarted. We just, hear, we just hold that, the, that its ending has ended. Um, so what does this yeah. kind of interregnum actually mean? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I think this is an important bit of the whole like um, project of the, the book and the podcast is it's it's a negative construction, isn't it? The end of the end of history, double negative, but doesn't necessarily mean there's anything positive. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, th- I think fancy a double negative. Is this fancy, George, with the double negative? I mean, it's it's got fancy ideas, but it's very clearly written crisply, um, at least in parts. Depends who. <laughs> who drafted which part you might we just might be able to uh discern differences or not maybe not um it's a, it's a collective effort obviously um we all wrote one letter um sequentially so it's jointly written in that way like it ends um, up like concrete poetry that's what uh, the final form of it is yeah so it's it's completely unreadable um but has some good ideas in it um no, so I mean, there's there's some of the other some of the ideas that that listeners of the podcast for a little while will will have uh, come across already. Neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, aka knobs. There's um, a gripping chapter on that. Um, there's some some ideas about what comes next in terms of this, the sort of coming structure of uh, ideological conflict or what the left and the right and the centre might end up doing. Um, so yeah, there's a lot a lot to to recommend it and i think it might even be available for pre-order so <laughs> i mean if you can get people if you're not seeing your your relatives over christmas and they can wait till june for for their christmas present this could be a <laughs> this could be a good solution it's also and it's not so i mean in addition to the vaccine um something else is good at come something else good has come out in 2020 or has been produced at least in 2020 because obviously the vaccine is really going to be rolled out in 2021 as indeed will the bunga book so two good things have come out of 2020, the Bunga book and the vaccine. Yeah, free free jab with every book. Um, that's, the, <laughs> that's the big sell. Uh, it doesn't matter if you've had a jab Alex, already. Get Alex, is, Alex is going to give you your jab while he gives you the book as well. There you go. Yeah, yeah well, that's um, either threatening kind of sexually uh, or otherwise. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, that's it, basically. Um, looking forward to it coming out. We'll probably do some more previews and we hope to be launching the book in real life in in places where you might be. So, um, you know, watch the space. We'll, we'll announce more as, as we get nearer to the time. Um, so anyway, um, maybe we should move on to uh, the main course, which is dealing with your questions and criticisms that we've received over the past two months or so. I think it's been about two months since we've done one of these. Um, it's kind and, of like a criticism tapas if, if this is the main course because there's lots of different sorts of dishes from different regions and different that's flavors not what tapas is, some, though. I mean, some positive some negative but yeah also best um best had with a drink i would say so yeah, right. it is the so, final episode of the year anyway so. on, on with the negative tapas um so uh, we had two questions. These are kind of general ones, which I guess people had on uh, on their minds thinking about, well, listening to this podcast and, and also kind of thinking about discussions on the left today. 
Uh, and the questions both, uh, both from anonymous people <laughs> or people who didn't want their names revealed, better put, um, from about heterodox leftism or maybe left renegades is maybe the better way to put it, um, or even the Strasserism question. Um, so that let me kind of read these questions out in, in summary, at least. Um, one holds that in the past five years, we've seen a lot of attacks by the existing left on perceived dissenters. Uh, so people like Mark Fisher, uh, the late Mark Fisher, Angela Nagel, Freddie DeBoer, and so on. And so why do you think these people are so vilified on the existing left? And relatedly, um, someone had a question about the extent of our anti-wokeness in quotation marks. So in our interview with Anna Katchen, uh, this person holds that we it sounded like we would consider someone like Tucker Carlson an ally uh, in some regards, and that the cultural conservatism advanced by someone like him is something that the left should incorporate. Uh, so they asked, do you think problems like racism, sexism, homophobia, and so on should be ignored by the left? Uh, or even that the left should actually take the socially conservative stance against things like LGBTQ rights and immigration. Uh, Phil, um, what do you, what do you, what is your take on this? I mean, kind of both a question no, so about, I mean yeah. yeah so I mean I think I mean certainly that's you know I wouldn't um I mean so let me cultural conservatism I suppose is something that I think um Angela Nagel explicitly supports um that she thinks the left should be culturally conservative to some degree uh the what she means by that I think is in keeping you know it's fairly specific it's not say um reversing uh, gains in women's emancipation or um, rights for sexual minorities, but that the um, uh, kind of woke identitarianism and um, multiculturalism, perhaps, um, you know, she's uh, very explicitly cast herself as a Lashian leftist. So um, certainly, I mean, some of the people um, that we've talked about and people whose ideas we've interrogated, I think, would cast themselves or aspire to cultural conservatism, but it's not something that we do. Um, and certainly that, you know, by no means would that mean um, uh, kind of um, putting to one side uh, issues like racism, sexism, homophobia, and so on, um, and suggesting that they are insignificant, um, but rather that they have to be, I mean, or at least this would be my view, that they have to be bundled together as part of a wider project of political emancipation, of social emancipation, mm. and that it has to be integrated around a politics that's ultimately based on class um, rather than seen as um, specific, uh, rather than alleviating the plight of um, specific kind of uh, specific marginalized groups, it's got to be seen as a integrated program of um, advancing human freedom in different dimensions. And I think that's the difference. Um, and I mean, there's, you know, deeper, I suppose, um, there's deeper uh, ways to talk about that, but I think without you know keep, keeping it kind of short and sweet. And I certainly, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I certainly don't think. I hope that we didn't give it came across as if we saw Tucker Carlson as an ally. Only that um, it's interesting and important that somebody like him is so aggressively expanding into political space that has been completely vacated by the left. Yeah, um, and that is very striking and important and worth drawing attention to. And to his credit, at least, he's very you know I mean he's very effective. He's a very effective propagandist. He's um, fluent, articulate, and he is um, able to express the kinds of grievances that the left is unable or unwilling to. And to that extent, um, that is worth drawing attention to and trying to learn something from. But I certainly wouldn't cast him as an ally um, either of the left or of uh, the pod. 
Yeah, I think these two questions are related because they're a thing. <clears throat> and to take the example of Angela Nagel, her cancellation um, came around to um, predominantly an article that she wrote, which opposed the idea of open borders. And I think the even if you, um, well, whatever your position on this, the idea that there's a central um, idea or a central political disagreement that um, if you're on the left, you can't you can't take as anything other than one position, namely that of free movement or open borders. Um, that is going to create exactly as Phil said, a political space which more culturally conservative or I think if you would categorize um, Tucker Carlson as a populist of some sort can move into. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it shows something of the um, limitations of the left, obviously that there's all of these um, uh, individuals and you can name a few more than, than that, that question uh, included who have seen themselves transgress some, some uh, position or some sort of, I guess, rule of engagement and then have been essentially cast out. Um, and the disagreements have been not necessarily political, but have been framed in, in other ways, which, of course, is a demonstration that political d disagreements can't really be played out, which is a sign of the weakness, I think, of some parts of the left. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I find it um, I don't really understand it, and I find it irritating the fact that when you argue against certain forms of left or liberal politics, such as liberal anti-racism that and and place the emphasis on class, that by default means that you don't think racism should be broached as a political issue, um, which is, you know, very far from the case. Um, the problem is that the form in which those like anti-racism takes today is, is ends up being problematic, you know, as Phil has already suggested. I think like Ben Fong, who's the editor of Damage Magazine, had an article out kind of in the middle part of the year, which I thought was useful in distinguishing cultural and social liberalism. And so culturalism would like demand intersectional thinking, um, the deference to do uh, kind of reified social identities. Um, whereas social liberalism is just the kind of liberalism, so well, the social liberalism that we have known throughout most of the 20th century um, of fighting for um, women's emancipation, for gay rights, uh, for enfranchisement of, of excluded minorities and so on. Um, and I think they're different things because also, you know, cultural, you might be culturally conservative, for example, with regard to certain aspects of teaching. For example, you might inf uh, insist on uh, the teacher's authority, um, which cultural liberals today would would reject, you know, they think that, you know, the teacher should learn from the students and it should be, you know, the more horizontal approach and so on. Um, or with regard to, you know, the role of the consumer, that that consumers should be ultimately um, should decide what gets produced. And so consumers should hold a veto over what gets produced. I personally would would go against that. But this is that's not really the terrain on which a lot of this stuff happens. So, you know, you might take a sort of, let's say, Lashian approach, um, though, uh, I don't think it can be reduced only to him, it, but that approach, which, which holds that certain kind of, like say, let's say like kind of aspects of postmodern culture um, should be opposed. And I think that you can say that while still being a social liberal, in fact, and I think what, what is really striking about the current moment is that cultural 
cultural liberalism seems to go against, in many cases, social liberalism. Um, so in the way that maybe, I don't know, I mean, one polemic, one current current controversy is the way that uh, trans activists go against many certain uh, feminist gains. I mean, that's often, that's a, a really obviously a hot debate at the moment. Um, so I think it's interesting to kind of put these things up against one another, cultural liberalism against social liberalism. Um, and then I guess just finally, yeah, yeah I think the fact that anyone who, who who kind of goes against these ideas um, goes against the new orthodoxy. And I think it's important that to, to recognize that whatever is orthodox today on the kind of liberal left is something that in many cases was completely, completely marginal and not discussed like three years yeah. ago. So yeah. in, in, insisting that you must toe the line on this new orthodoxy is like, hang on, I just arrived here. Wait, what, what's going on? You know, like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get the rules yet. Like, um, so, and I think that that is um, kind of, I mean, it's, it's quite a, an oppressive way to, to behave. And so that's why, um, and, and anybody who, who dissents from that uh, ends up getting attacked. So, you know, I think we all know how ridiculous a lot of woke culture is today. Um, and I think it's important to insist that arguing against wokeness is that can be in defense of social liberalism, um, which yeah. would certainly be our, yeah. our point of view. And I think, I mean, so, you know, the, what George alluded to and what the first question alluded to about the dissenters. Um, I mean, I have my disagreements with um, each of the individuals mentioned in the question, Mark Fisher, Angela Nagel and so on. Um, but the, the fact that there are people who's, you know, whose views, I mean, are not um, by any means particularly, you know, ultimately are not particularly unusual or extreme by, if you think about them with respect to the lot, you know, to the population at large, that they would be so viciously kind of hounded and castigated and um, slandered speaks to um, just the, the sheer kind of uh, the conformity and the oppressiveness of um, of politics on the left at the moment. So, I mean, I think that you know it, that is the most obvious kind of lesson of the um, of the way in which um, a certain kind of dissenter was treated. And then, just the mm. second point I would add to um, what Alex has been saying about social and cultural liberalism is that these are also, I mean, you know, kind of um, official anti-racism and official anti-sexism are also the ways in which. Um, uh, the ruling class and ruling elites organize their own rule. It's how they're politically organized around these principles. And it's important um, because um, they are ways of dissolving the rule of the majority. So minoritarian kind of the defense of vulnerable marginal groups and organizing around um, their claims is a way in which the um, the demands of a potential majority can be dispersed and dissolved, um, fragmented, and different groups can be played off against each other. And I think that is very much the logic of um, the way in which these um, political principles have become hegemonic today. So ideas that well, at one point were kind of um, the fringe ideas of the 1960s left have become mainstream ruling ideas. And the reason they become mainstream ruling ideas is because they allow for an effective um, dispersal of the attempt to kind of muster collective and political power, and they do it very effectively. Yeah, they're anti-majoritarian, um, and this might or might not fit in with a with a left whose project might not be majoritarian. I mean, as you know, just to to make it perhaps over obvious, the you know, there's points around anti-fascism, anti-racism, the 
idea then is that people don't deserve equal political rights or representation or material gains because they're they're racist or fascist. And we saw, sorry to go back to Brexit again, but we saw the culture war there so clearly as the um, the way that the left worked in this instance, or the British left at least. Um, and I don't think people were quite cancelled, but um, certainly uh, Eddie Dempsey <laughs> got called a fascist for making a very uh, lukewarm criticism of the liberal left. Um, and yeah, I mean, this this was another case of, of taking, I guess, something that is a political question and making into into culture war. And, I, you know, that's, I guess, although I don't think we'd all agree on all of the points that we've just been discussing, probably we would all share the, the idea that the analysis of any of these ideological movements or um, strands of the left has to be based in, you know, which class interests do they serve? Yeah, and I mean, I'll just add that, you know, as regards to majoritarian versus minoritarian, it doesn't mean that the in the, the, the kind of existing interests of the majority must win out over minorities. I mean, that would be an argument for for the oppression of, of, of kind of ethnic minorities, for example. But the point is precisely that the demands emanating from, from a minority can have a, a kind of a majoritarian appeal, a majoritarian base, for example, um, against... Universalistic appeal. Well, exactly. So, you know... Yeah, it's against, the politics uh, of universalism versus the politics of, um, of uh, victimhood. Well, exactly. So, you know, the, the the questions of racist policing in the US, which obviously was the, the issue of, of the year, um, can be t- treated in a universal manner because, of course, everybody is subject to brutalized, uh, brutalizing uh, U.S. policing, right? You know, it would be good if everybody, <laughs> you know, if the police didn't have such power over people. Um, and that, that applies for everyone. Um, and that's that would be a universal way of looking at it rather than a particularist one. So I think it's not just about minorities. It's not about majorities versus minorities, but about universalism versus particularism. <laughs> Um, maybe we should move on. Uh, we'll, we'll start taking. I think the next one um, is very much to the point. I guess around this stuff, around minor, around um, universalism, because uh, this is in relation to our most recent episode, uh, number one six five, uh, about the biography of Toussaint Louverture. Uh, so Sam uh, says that the what he found in the episode was that it was woke identitarian nonsense, the type of stuff that gets you a glowing write up in the Guardian by a non specialist. Read the primary sources Haziri Singh cites in the book and see if you come away with such a rosy picture of Bouvel Chiro. Um, guys, I'll let you, you deal with this as you uh, conducted the interview. Oh, yeah, it's such a bizarre... Um, I mean, I'm just not sure um, what the listener is contesting here. Um, I mean, because if they're, you know, if they're off, if they're suggesting that it would be, you know, that the primary sources should be interpreted in a different way, then... Um, uh, they haven't offered it, so it's difficult to know how else. I mean, uh, you know, Sudhir Hazari Singh is the author of the new biography. He's gone through the he's gone through the um, through the archival material and all of that. And it seems to me um, he's got a right to be heard, and the way in which he presents the evidence is um, compelling and effective. And I'm not sure, um, in terms of a rosy picture, um, what was uh, what would be the alternative to a rosy picture? I mean, certainly we weren't presenting. Louverture as a as a saint, or as some um, um, some kind of humanitarian leader, or um, some kind of uh, Gandhi figure of on la lettre or something like that, but as a as a ruthless revolutionary leader in circumstances of astonishing um, 
astonishing kind of um, political difficulty, complexity, and world historic importance. And I don't think any of that is was is underplayed either in the biography or in the discussion that we had. Um, I mean, you know, we talked in quite quite a bit of detail about, for instance, when Louverture um, deliberately sabotaged a French expedition that was intended to liberate slaves on the British colony of Jamaica. And he deliberately sabotaged the expedition because he thought it was against the interests of what they had achieved, what the freed slaves in Haiti um, or Saint-Domingue, as it was at the time, had achieved. Um, so um, it was. I'm. I'm just. I'm just not puzzled by the uh, by the listeners. Um, by the listeners' criticism, I'm not sure yeah. what they're driving out or what the alternative would be. Well, I guess one of the other, or probably the the most famous book on on Louverture is obviously C.L.R. James's Black Jacobins, and that's that is slightly different. Um, a slightly different picture. I think they're, you know, they're both more or less rosy, depending on your meaning of of rosy. Um, and I think probably the James's account obviously focuses a bit more on the, from Marxist perspective, on the, the class forces. But of course, they're also in the in Hazara Singh's book as well. So I I don't know. Maybe the um, maybe the person who asked the question has had a look at the primary sources that, that we have and, and has a um a more critical view um but they haven't made it they haven't made it apparent so i mean it's difficult to know so how to respond to it so mm. let, let's let's move on i mean there was just one comment which i liked because it it, it resonated with me with jeremy clemens so on on patreon commented that uh, you know living in a society without any popular memory of revolution uh is difficult it warps the canadian psyche i guess speaking from his experience and i think that's kind of true especially you know it if, if kind of our times are marked by the lack of historical memory, the lack of historical continuity, the, the sense that we kind of live in an eternal present uh, or disconnection from the past, is that, you know, it makes it even more difficult, I think, to make certain arguments when you live in a society which doesn't really have any memory of revolution. I mean, it's the case in the UK. Um, it's a case really in Brazil. It's the case you know, in Brazil, um, much more in Brazil than we it is had in the UK. No, no, but the, but the, we had a bourgeois revolution. Yeah, that was too long ago. Much. No one cares it anymore. Was, yeah, it's, you know, it was too Before long Before my time. Exactly. It was before your time. No, but in Brazil as well, you know, Brazil, one of the main discussions around Brazilian modernization, Brazilian history is the lack of a bourgeois revolution, whether the left's task should be to complete the bourgeois revolution or try to overthrow and, you know, go for communism straight away or, you know, that's it should be to it should be to travel back in time to <laughs> help the bourgeoisie make a revolution earlier. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's that's as realistic as the other options anyway. So. <laughs> But, you know, like, whereas, like, in, in, in France, for example, like, no one would be against the French Revolution in France. Like, I mean, the, the, obviously, it was a big dividing line in French politics for, 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 you know, a century and a half. But, you know, nowadays, no one would say they're against the French Revolution. I think it's no, a reference they do. point. There probably they are do. some corners are. Of, of, of Twitter. No, but there's and... more than corners. I mean, there's entire debates about which part of the French Revolution um, which of the French, you know, kind of which year of the French Revolution sure, 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 do you support sure. no, no, and before no it... Before but there's Robespierre no and before the there. terror and all of that. Yeah, yeah, but there's no one who's saying like just we should, go, you know, a pure defender of the Ancien Régime. Like that just doesn't exist. Whereas in the UK, you have many defenders of the Ancien Régime because you have the perpetuation of the Lords and everything else. Yeah, I'm not sure it's defenders. They're not defenders of the Ancien Régime. They're defenders of the settlement um, of the yeah. that came out of the Glorious Revolution, but without being cognizant 
of um, how it was actually achieved. And that's brushed, you know, brushed over. And famously, there's like what, um, and this came out, in fact, as a result of the BLM protests, that I think there's something, I think there's no more than three statues of Oliver Cromwell in the entire country. I knew you one of them, have, I knew one you of them famously. Oh, I'm sorry that I'm talking about a Republican leader, a revolutionary Republican leader, George, if it no, embarrasses I'm, you. I just knew, I just knew it was coming. Yeah, well, good. I'm glad you knew it was coming. Okay. So boys. yeah, there's only three. There's only three. Famously, the one outside Parliament, and I think the other one is in his birthplace. Um, but uh, yeah, far I, we need many more. Is the point. I, th I think there's a, there's another sense about historical memory of revolution which is important, which is the idea that in a more basic sense that things might not be the way they are forever. And I think that's important, you know, that it's not necessary reference to a determinate revolution and what were the gains of it, what was maybe lost from it uh, as a consequence of it from a from a more conservative point of view. It's not just that debate around that specific revolution, but just the idea that society can be tumultuous, history throws up new things, that there are moments of difficulty, um, which I think in somewhere like the UK, um, you, you really don't have that sense that anything could be fundamentally different. And I think you saw that with Brexit, you know, everything was like, well, Brexit will create this certain difficulty, right? That, you know, trade might be interrupted for a period of time. And that's just seen as a completely um, impossible situation, something that can't be, can't be dealt with. So um, I think it, I think, you I think, I mean, I think Brexit does give some of that. Um, it does give, I mean, I think part of the derangement, the knobs that we've seen, the neoliberal the breakdown syndrome that we've seen in the UK does speak to the, um, the kind of the sheer uh, incomprehension at the fact that um, political disagreement can, um, can make kind of life inconvenient in a very basic way. I mean, there's one bellend on Twitter who was earlier today, who's um, talking about how, you know, um, there won't be any tiramisu and hummus after Brexit. And very seriously, I mean, he's a huge auto English, he's got a huge following, and he's just very openly kind of talking in these purely parochial middle class terms about how difficult life will be. And I think, you know, that kind of nonsense speaks to um, the way in which uh, this kind of um, incredibly uh, settled um, bourgeois um, consensus has been broken up by a political transformation. And there's simply an inability still to process it or to effectively um, comprehend what's happened. And I think that speaks, so it's more, there is a sense of um, the status quo breaking down. And I think the derangement speaks to the inability to deal with it. And it's more that, I think, um, than, um, than kind of unchanging, frozen historical time that we're living through at the moment. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the next one. Uh, some comments about from episode 163 on uh, censorship where we had Doug Lane on. Um, Matthew Black comments that conspiracy theories, he reckons, haven't gotten worse, but rather the skeptical position has been hollowed out so that it's become, you know, kind of a argument around pure facts, you know, that, that you're going to challenge conspiracy theories with facts, um, which is something that proved useless with Russiagate, um, which I think is, which I think is pretty clear. Um, I, I think either the skeptical position has been hollowed out. I'm trying to think about what that really means, what that entails. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that's probably right. You know, that you don't have um, a genuine critical position in, in, in poll and society. So uh, you get a kind of very, um, you know, conservative mainstream narrative and you get crazy conspiracy theories as the kind of, um, you know, kind of main opposition in society without, without any kind of substantial uh, alternative, alternative view. Um, 
he also goes on to, to comment that manufacturing consent, um, you know, the, the kind of Chomsky's notion, uh, means that journalism today is already de facto censored. Mainstream journalism is pre-censored journalism. Um, and, that, uh, and that social media has allowed for previously repressed ideas to, to spill out. Um, George. Yeah, I mean, the, um, I guess the main point here is what's your political orientation to, to social media? Um, and I think the, the left has tended to be fairly, fairly skeptical. It's a fairly easy sort of scapegoat and, um, and target. Um, if you can't mobilize people, if you can't get mass support for your program, it's the media's fault. Um, and that, you know, brings you a whole load of uh, associated ideas such as, yeah, Russiagate or various kind of abilities to, to manipulate information behind the, the scenes um, with people as, as more or less kind of willing dupes. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the sort of the, the, the exact question is is here. It seems more of a sort of well, yeah, statement. I, th- I think there's a point. I guess. I mean, you know, I think that one one thing that has to be said is that even you know, even the worst for the worst examples of free media are still better than having a, a you know a kind of censored media. So you'd still need to defend um, free speech, even if a lot of mainstream journalism is terrible. Um, I think that needs yeah. to, that that needs to be the case. There's another point which was made from Malcolm Perry about you know the reason that the algorithm flagged that. Um, that uh, video, um, Zero Books' video, was because it had a flagged element in it. So Alex mention of Alex Jones. Um, and so it wasn't just based on the content of what they were arguing, but about the fact that certain things get mentioned because that's the way the algorithm works. Well, yeah, indeed, obviously that's how it is. The, the fact is, is that we're becoming as stupid as the algorithm. So the algorithm is stupid because it goes, oh, you've mentioned this thing which was flagged as bad, therefore what you are saying is bad. Um, but increasingly, a lot of public discourse seems to be <laughs> carried out along the same lines that you mentioned this bad thing. Therefore, you've said a bad thing, um, you know, so you can be have a thing which is critical about rape. But because you describe rape um, that therefore, um, you know, you're an apologist for it, you know, and you can find this sort of literalism, um, you know, many arguments, many examples of this. And I think we've discussed this on the podcast before, where um, it feels like a lot of the liberal left sounds like Tipper Gore, you know, from the, from the, from the 90s. It sounds like the old school or Mary Whitehouse for British listeners, you know, the kind of old school censors where you mention this thing, which is uncouth, uh, rude, uh, you know, satanic, whatever. Um, and that therefore, you know, that, that should be an object of censorship. And I think, uh, yeah, basically, uh, public discourse is becoming as bad as, uh, as these automated uh, algorithms. Okay, so let's move on to uh, number 160, uh, the interview with Wolfgang Strick. Uh, Sensible Captain comments, um, you know, why didn't we mention the Hearts, fo- uh, the Hearts Fear reforms, uh, which, uh, as she explains, finance Germany's economic export leadership, military leadership, and probably also ideological leadership in the EU. 
at the expense of an extreme pauperization amongst uh, the German population. You know, so the Hartsphere reforms um, were ways of effectively abolishing the welfare state, reducing workers' rights, and so on. And it was put forward by the Social Democratic and, and Green government in, in the early 2000s. Um, so she felt that we've missed out discussing that. Yeah, so, so I think Sensible Captain is right. I mean, uh, to be fair, I mean, to Streak, um, to Wolfgang Streak, he's some, he has spoken in detail about um, the heart sphere reforms. And I've seen him talk about it in different contexts and he's written about it. And um, it's an oversight really on our part that we should have picked them up because I think it would have been, um, it would have helped to um, kind of uh, consolidate what we've been talking about. And it's something we should pick up with him when we speak to him in future, I think for sure. Yeah, it's a sensible comment from sensible captain, and you know we have to take we have to take that criticism. But I think it's you know it's 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 really you know it's a, it's an important part of Germany's um, conditional hegemony within the EU that it's based on extraordinary suppression of 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 wages um as well as a whole load of other factors yeah so which is why the can... germany germany versus the periphery argument gets it wrong to discuss it in national terms we there's clearly more for us to talk about here we should yeah, have I wolfgang mean, on again part of it yeah we should yeah, yeah let's get let's call wolfie up can we call him wolfie i'm calling him wolfie um you right, could so... call him that he might not respond but <laughs> Um, number one five nine Biden time, <laughs> which sounds like I'm uh, sounds like I'm a bingo announcer. One five nine Biden time, one five six Bernie's dicks. Right. So uh, several comments on this, um, which uh, dealt with a number of issues around what the exact factors were in in Biden winning about uh, the vote, the role of Latinos um, and so on. So, but we're not going to get into to all of them because there's some interesting points there, but we can't deal with them all. One was just a, a comment by a, a person who wishes to remain anonymous, commenting that uh, Uber, uh, excuse me, Uber's motivation for spending so much on opposing Proposition 22. So, but Proposition 22 um, was a ballot initiative in California, which um, sought to um, basically not exempt Uber and other platform companies from treating their employees like employees. Um, so treating them like subcontractors and therefore not having to offer the same rights that they would normally have to offer to employees. Um, so uh, Amber uh, Lee Frost, our guest, held that there were some... Uh, they were, it was due to some ideological rigidity on the part of Uber. But this person argues that, no, it was basically just financial calculation, um, that Uber had spent so much on legal fees um, Fighting off lawsuits from from uh, from workers or or other uh, other stakeholders claiming that well they should be given rights um, that they figured it's probably better just to spend a huge amount of money um, opposing this ballot initiative or supporting it. I've forgotten which side it was which. Excuse me, but um, but did anyway, you just say stakeholders, Alex. I did say stakeholder, but I mean that's an actual thing. Um, you know, people who have a stake in in the thing. Anyway, you know, whatever. But um. But yeah, I think that's I think that's right, and I think we're gonna we're actually about after this about to record an article, uh, three articles, um, which will only come out in, in uh, next year, but uh, discussing in part uh, Uber and Uber's model. Um, so um, yeah, we'll discuss that maybe in more depth then. Yeah, it's just just worth remembering that um, California went for Proposition Twenty Two and Biden, while uh, Florida voted for an increase in the minimum wage and, and Trump. So yeah. And maybe it tells its own story. So um, we're going to move on uh, just a couple more um, before we finish this off. 
these all pertain to episode 158, which was the three articles in which we discussed a range of things, including COVID and uh, un- in- unsurprisingly, all the comments relate to COVID. Um, so first comment from Joel, um, directed at Phil, um, right between the eyes, uh, says that Phil gives the game away when he gives his quote unquote obvious prescription that we should focus on virus prevention measures uh, on the elderly um, rather than try to eliminate the spread of the virus uh, across the population. Um, So, you know, Phil making an argument against lockdown. Um, Joel takes exception to this because he thinks that that's one technical analysis versus another. Um, And Phil's one has is one that just happens to have support amongst conservatives in the UK and the US. Um, For him, this is just a kind of a a cranky approach to technocracy. Um, And so, you know, a crank is just simply a failed technocrat. Basically, uh, Phil is being cranky. It's just another technocratic um, it's just a kind of cranky version of a technocratic argument um, and isn't a real solution. Well, is this you, Alex? <laughs> is, this Joel, uh, is this Joel like a... No, but I don't know who this person is, but I will um, phone him up and say thank you. Thank I've you. never <laughs> met them. They just happen to have the same email address as me. <laughs> no, so Phil. I think, I mean, I think it's been, there's a misunderstanding about um, uh, technocracy here. Um, and perhaps it wasn't clear enough in the original episode in 158. So um, the, you know, my profit suggestion isn't based on, um, I'm not claiming it as a one which is, um, you know, based on superior kind of my superior technical competence or expertise. And the criticism of the technocracy wasn't that it was, um, you know, uh, what was wrong with it isn't so much the isn't just the nature of the solution, but the fact that it was the way in which it was legitimated and authorized, um, because it was legitimated and authorized on the basis of the expertise of scientists, as if there was no disagreement among scientists on the basis, at least in the UK, but also as well of um, demographic modeling, which had built in all sorts of assumptions, and which have been, I mean, the initial demographic, um, sorry, epidemiological modeling, which was used to just, you know, was used to justify the lockdown here in the UK was half a million deaths. And even as severe as Corona has been in the UK, I mean, it's nowhere near something as, um, as terrible as that kind of toll. So um, the point was about the way in which choices were authorized and legitimated, not in the sense that there was, um, you know, that uh, one analysis is technical and one solution is technical and the other isn't. And the failure to incorporate um, other kinds of concerns, which only belatedly now are being taken into account, Um, unemployment, um, various sectors of the economy, um, all sorts of uh, conditions to do with supporting wages, um, the astonishing kind of expansion of um, uh, the, the financial assets of the wealthy as a result of lockdown. Um, the number of people who have lost their jobs um, and the, just the devastating um, effect, long-term effect that will they'll be on the economy, on schools closing down, on people having been terrorized and kept away from hospitals so that they've not been, um, their medical problems haven't been investigated properly or tested. We're expecting to see a huge spike in, um, in, treatable, prevent, in treatable diseases otherwise because people have been kept away from 
being um, treated in hospital as a result of COVID. So all these other concerns weren't integrated into the response. They purely kind of, rather than trying to mediate different interests in society, which is the point of politics, um, they simply kind of fell back on the authority that was the ideological cover that was provided by what epidemiological modelers said. Um, And so that was the point about my criticism of technocracy more than um you know more than um, more than anything else and i don't wish to put you know the my solution profit solution or the one that i was more sympathetic to about keeping pouring resources into protecting the vulnerable those with underlying health conditions and the elderly the intention of that was um or the it's not to say as if that wouldn't be costly um it would be costly not only in economic terms but also for the people concerned um separating them and isolating them from the rest of society would obviously be costly and would obviously have consequences um for civil liberty as well so it's not as if it was um one kind of um simple solution against a more nuanced and complex one or as if um the one that i was sympathetic to didn't have its costs it did But the main issue that I wanted to draw attention to and that I stick by it is the way in which choices were legitimized and authorized and that it was anti-political. And the fact that it was anti-political shows the um, crudity um, with which lockdown has been carried out. And the fact that now we're scrabbling to resolve the long, perfectly foreseeable um, damaging social, economic and political costs as well, not least to civil liberty. Yeah. And since we've been locked down for so long, we don't have enough energy to actually mount the, the critique or the political op- opposition. Or maybe I'm just speaking from my from my uh, own own position. But so yeah. before, Georgia, if you want to say anything else, I'm just going to read out some other questions in relation to this. Daniel L says, I don't really understand all this anti-lockdown stuff here in Australia it has been a success combined with closed borders. The unemployment benefit was doubled and suicides have actually decreased uh, on last year. Um, In contrast, Daniel Matthews Ferrero says, after not being uh, allowed out for so much as exercise for months on end, because I don't own a dog, I will quite straightforwardly say, fuck the logic of medical expertise. So so someone being against uh, lockdown there. Um, I think there's a lot, the general lockdown discussion is very difficult uh, to hold kind of at a global level because people's experience, personal experience of it is very different. So what you're, you know, I'm not, we've had stuff being shut in Sao Paulo, but we've never had lockdown. So I'm not really angry about lockdown because I've never had my personal uh, freedom restricted in the sense that in in the way that you have in Spain or Italy or France. you know, in the UK, you're actually relatively lucky compared to what what was happening in France. You know, you didn't you, need, you didn't never needed to have a note to leave the house in the UK. Um, so I think there's a lot. So lucky, of, we're so grateful. Yes, exactly. For this well, you know, it's a pandemic, so you're going to have certain restrictions. But I think the point being, thank um, you, Alex. Yeah, the point being is thank that thank you for you, your consideration. Yeah, well, you know, um, the <laughs> the point being anyway is just that one people's emotional motivations around the discussion are vastly different um so yeah i mean i don't i mean so that influences so like, i think that but this listener you know the think, listener daniel but, l is talking about australia where it's been a success i mean i think it's um you know it's contestable whether the costs have been you know whether the costs of lockdown have been worth it in australia as well but also i mean as alex has indicated i mean the experience has varied widely um, nationally. And you can't simply derive at the global level um, that lockdown is a success because you have had countries that have had ex- 
extremely stringent lockdowns, such as Italy, Spain, and France, and that have still seeing, um, you know, have still kind of suffered severely um, in terms of fatalities and in terms of, um, you know, kind of hospitalizations and so yeah. on. So we, had this, we had this discussion, had didn't this discussion. we? There isn't, simply, there isn't a picture which you can take from one country and assume it can be easily extrapolated um, and applied as a template to yeah. others. Not least one, because one, lockdown means many different things. I mean, there's a whole range of different policies there. Yeah. Yeah. And one point on Daniel, uh, on, yeah, on Daniel Matthews Ferrero's point, you know, why not just get a dog? I mean, that's a, that's a quick win right there. Dogs, dogs are not just for Christmas, but this Christmas you could, you could get one. There you go. You've got something to do. Dogs, dogs are the same. Maybe this of listener. The pet world. <laughs> maybe this listener has a cat. Cats, cats are the eat girls. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe, or maybe they're allergic to dogs. Did you think about that? Yeah. Uh, allergies are all mental. You know, you just gotta. I don't know. Get over it. I can imagine we're going to get some responses to that in our next staff of bonus. I have. I must have complained about my hay fever before. And uh, all of my my str- my personal struggles. Jesus, you have to say, oh, my hay fever, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, um, yeah. So, so just to round this off, uh, one last question, one last point, uh, which I don't remember whether we've mentioned or not, but uh, sensible captain pointing out that the WHO tried to rename social distancing uh, to physical distancing, um, and uh, that obviously wasn't taken up, which is quite telling uh, in yeah, itself. Uh, whatever you find on, uh, feel about Thanks. lockdown yeah. um, and various policies, I think uh, it, what we, we, we're all missing each other, I think, uh, is Thanks. the basic point. Thanks and to Sensible been, Captain for drawing that to, yeah. to our attention, because I think it really is telling and interesting, so... Yeah, indeed. So um, let's uh, let's hope for 2021 to have a lot more social togetherness um, rather than social distancing. Uh, what an uplifting message. Yeah, Thanks, no, Alex. I think that was good. That's a good place to finish. So anyway, as we said, this is the last Patreon episode of the year, um, but we've got a one final free episode coming out, which is Todd McGowan on the 22nd of December. Um, listeners to our reading club, the, the kind of tier two and three patrons, that's a patron thing, not a lockdown thing anyway um tier two and three patrons who have access to the book club um will have heard us discuss todd mcgowan's book on hegel and we have an interview with him coming out on the 22nd of december which is um more wide-ranging uh, more political um and a little bit more popular i guess than the than the more intricate discussion of the book so that'll be really interesting um that'll be out uh, next week and then we're back after the holidays on the 5th of january with an interview with andreas malm about covid war communism and climate change um that was really interesting i think we disagreed on a lot of this on a lot of issues but andreas was a fantastic guest who is uh willing to entertain our criticisms and there's a good back and forth on that so uh, that's coming out on the 5th of january something to look forward to uh also we'll have a preview of what to look forward what to expect not to look forward to exactly but what to expect from uh the biden administration uh and much more uh besides and so uh, we'll leave you with that for now uh thank you for being with us uh, all year it was delightful to have you thank you for all the questions and comments keep them coming as always um, and that's it for now. Fuck 2020. Goodbye. Yeah.